0: Um, We're going back to Chapter 8, which was interferometers. And we're going to talk about the Fabry-PRO interferometer today. So we had talked about the Michelson interferometer, the mach interferometer, and the Saniac interferometer, which were all very similar in that they used the interference of two beams to produce some interference pattern. And we could use that interference pattern to infer some information about the uh, path that the beams had traveled, whether that be the physical path length difference or the index of refraction difference of different materials. And you did some homework problems on those uh, last week. So the Fabry-PRO interferometer is different than the Michelson in that it's a multi-beam interferometer. It is essentially two mirrors, and when I say mirrors, these really, you can think of them as mirrors or partially transmissive mirrors. Um, no mirror is 100% reflective. There's always some light that leaks through. And so if you consider light coming from a source over here that leaks through this first mirror, then you'll get that uh, standing in a holiday in elevator effect, where you've got a mirror on both sides of you. And you look and you see an infinite number of reflections of yourself. Um, the light just basically bounces back and forth. And you can think of each ray moving to the right as coming from a virtual image of the source over here. So it's like there's a whole bunch of images of the source that are all adding up. And for the light that leaks through the second mirror, then, we have a transmitted field. And it's made up of an infinite number of rays that come from what seems to be an infinite number of images of the source. So they will add up. And depending on the phase shift, that they get traveling one round trip between these mirrors, they can add up constructively, destructively, or any point in between. So they will produce an interference pattern at, um, if we have diverging light, so it's spreading out, then the path length that the light takes going between the mirrors will depend on the angle. Light that's going on axis will travel a distance L going from one mirror to the next, but off-axis it will travel a longer distance right, because it's, it's going at an angle. And so as a function <coughs> of angle, the, pha- the, uh, the phase difference between the interfering beams will change. So there will be some angles where the diverging light will add up constructively and some angles where it will not. Okay, and So there will be some sort of interference pattern here on the screen. And we'll investigate that in detail. Wade? Stupid question. Um, you, have the, you have the lens there, focusing the light on the screen. Right? Yeah. Why is there an interference pattern when the light is focused at a point on the screen? OK, so what we have is light coming out that we have, as shown here, a bunch of rays that are parallel to each other and have some phase difference that depends on the spacing of these mirrors. Um, and so they will add up to produce interference if they overlap in space. And as drawn, they don't overlap in space. These rays are physically separated. The function of the lens is to focus them down to a point. And when they get to that point, then they're overlapping in space. Right. But wouldn't there, so below that point and above that point, why would there be interference? Oh, well, we'll see. There's interference at all points on this screen. But doesn't the, and the lens focus the light at one point on the screen? Well, the lens focuses... Don't you have the different what we have is... Yeah, we have... Diverging light coming from here. Okay. Um, as it's drawn, there's only one ray shown. But if this is a point source, then there will be rays in all directions. And so there will be rays coming out here in all directions. And if the Fabry-Pro cavity weren't there, there'd just be one ray to consider, um, sort of in every direction. And those rays would all focus to a point uh, wherever the image is located this distance here is not the image distance for this point this distance is one focal length and so these rays which are all come from the same source but are just uh... displaced due to the lateral displacement of the beams zigzagging through the mirrors these are all parallel and so parallel rays focus to a point one focal length away from the lens and then if we uh... We went back further um, to where the image of this source is. what we'd see is that the rays that went straight through the cavity, regardless of the direction, would get imaged to a point. But these rays are displaced, and so their image would also be displaced. Okay, so I guess what I'm saying is the the path the light takes from the source to this lens is not just a straight line like we had when we were dealing with, uh, with the thin lens equation and Gaussian imaging. It depends on how many times it bounces back and forth between these mirrors. So we shouldn't try to apply our imaging equations. So the lens doesn't focus at one point on the lens. Rays come in from all different points on the lens, and the lens focuses on the different points on the screen. So what we'll think about the lens is doing is taking light rays that are parallel, which is what we've drawn here focusing them one focal length away and then we don't need to worry about uh, imaging we'll just consider what happens to light rays at all different angles and for light rays at any given angle there will be an infinite number of them that are parallel at the same angle they will be focused um, to a point in that screen okay so first thing that I want to go over is um, understanding a relationship that's not exactly what you would expect and that is, um, we want to look at the interference condition between a ray which is reflected off of say, the top surface and one which is gone. Um, this is drawn for a film, but this could equally as well be two mirrors. So light that's gone through the cavity and back and compare the phase difference of those two beams. I said that it will depend on the angle. And I said that the um, steeper the angle of incidence, the longer the path through the material is. So you might expect that the phase difference for these rays would increase as the length of that path increases. And what we'll find is that's actually not the case. The phase difference decreases as this angle increases. And we just need to work out the geometry to see that. Okay, So this picture is from the textbook and this description is also given there. So I'll follow, um, I'll follow what's done there. Let's call the the physical path length difference, the difference between A to D, and the distance from A to B to C. Okay, so D and C are two points that are on a wavefront. Okay, so these two rays are parallel. This is a wavefront propagating out, so they should have um, the same phase. There's going to be a constructive interference and a ray propagating in that direction. So point D lies along the ray that's directly reflected from the first surface. And point C is along a ray which has gone through the, this could either be a film or this could be the spacing between two mirrors. Okay, so let's do a couple things. Let's break up the distance from A to B and from B to C. Into two parts, one part and two part, and I'll draw this uh, this line that's normal to this ray that passes through this point of symmetry. so G is halfway between A and C, and then GE is perpendicular to AB. And the motivation for doing this will be a little bit clearer in a minute. Okay, now we can say that the path length difference seen between. Rays that make it to point D into point C is given by the total path length from A to C and minus the total path length from A to D. Okay, so from A to C, the path length is the index of whatever material is here times AB plus B C. And that's what's given up here. And the index of the material I'm calling N sub F because this is a diagram for a thin film. Path length from A to D, the optical path length is the index of whatever this material is up here, which I'm calling N naught, times that physical distance AD. Okay, so this is the path length difference that's going to give rise to the interference. Now I'll break up the uh these lengths as I described, and I'll write them as AE plus EB plus BF plus F C. Okay, so. My distance from A to B has a term which comes from AE and a term which comes from EB. And I've separated those terms into two different parts, which I'll explain in a minute. And likewise, BC gets broken up into FC and BF. The AD didn't change. Okay, and the reason I've written it like this is because we can show that this term in brackets is equal to zero. What that's saying is, the path length from A to D is the same as the path length from E to B to F. Oh, I'm sorry. As from A to E plus F to C. So these two path lengths add up to that path length. Okay, so we're going to use Snell's Law to prove that. So n naught times sine theta N equals NF sine theta T. That's Snell's Law. And if I look at my diagram, here's the incident angle, same as that angle. Um, and it's also the same as this angle down here. Okay. This is the incident angle. This angle is 90 minus the incident angle. and This is a 90 degree angle. And this angle has to be the incident angle. Okay. You can stare at the geometry to convince yourself of that if you want. If you do that, you can write path length AD as being AC times sine of theta I. So that's written right here. AC times sine theta I is equal to AD. Um, likewise, the transmitted angle here is the same as this angle between the surface and this perpendicular line that we drew to right AB. And if that's the case, then this path length AE is just Ag times sine theta t. So sine theta t is Ae over Ag. And likewise, we can do the same thing for this triangle over here to get that sine theta t is Cf over Gc. Cf over Gc. Okay, so with these two relations, let's see, I can plug in for Ad. I can plug in um, sine theta i times ac. That's what I plugged in here for AB. And for ae, I can plug in sine theta t plus ag, which is the same thing. And for bc, I can plug in, I'm sorry, for fc, I can plug in sine theta t times gc. Well, Gc and Ag are the same length. So the distances, G is the point halfway between A and C. So from A to G and from G to C, those lengths are the same. So I have 2 times Ag times sine theta T as my distance, AE plus Fc. Okay, now, Ag is the same as Ac. That's what I just said, so I can factor those terms out. And I get nf times sine theta t minus n0 times sine theta i, which is just Snell's law. It says n0 sine theta i equals nf sine theta t. So this term has to equal that term. Term in brackets then goes to 0. Mark? you say again why ag is the same as ac? I'm having trouble seeing it defined as halfway between A and C. So AG and GC are each half of that distance. OK, so that just leaves this, this other term over here as the path length difference. So EB plus BF. I can express EB in terms of the thickness of the material, T and the transmitted angle. It's the thickness times cosine of the transmitted angle. And likewise for Bf. So I can write this path length difference as twice the thickness nf cosine theta t. Wade? My question. Um, If if some of the light is transmitted to a B, that's going to change the amplitude, but that won't change the phase difference. That's right. OK, so that's our expression for the path length difference. And notice, if you just looked at the the path length the light takes going from one surface to the other, as the angle increases, that path length gets longer, and you'd expect the the physical path length going through here to be the thickness divided by cosine of the angle. And instead what we're seeing is the thickness times the cosine of the angle, which is why I say it might not be what you expect. Um, And the reason is we have to also account for not just the distance this light travels going through, but also the distance that this light that didn't go through travels in order to catch up in the uh, sort of in the x direction to where the other light is. Okay, so we're going to apply that result. Um, and for now, what it just just shows us is that the uh, path length difference is going to be a function of angle. So, if we have diverging light, we're going to have different path lengths, um, path length differences for different angles. So, let's consider what happens when we have a single ray coming into the interferometer and it bounces back and forth. And we've done this analysis already for for an etalon. An etalon is just a, a film or some solid material that has reflection from both sides. So, here we replace the film with just air. And the sides we replace with mirrors. And the analysis is the same. The beam that goes straight through can be expressed as whatever the input beam was at an earlier time. So if I have the input beam as a function of t, then it takes a time l over c for the light to go through. So whatever the input beam was at the current time minus l over c, that's the input beam that gets transmitted through the first mirror, transmitted through the second mirror, and acquires a phase shift from going a distance L. Okay, And you could plug in our expression um, L times cosine theta if the light's not traveling on axis. Okay, So that's the first transmitted beam. I guess I've called it the zeroth transmitted beam because it has zero round trips in the cavity. The light in this next beam, which has traveled an extra round trip in the cavity, has been delayed by an extra 2L over C. So I need the input field at T minus 3L over C. This is the time it takes the light to go three paths, 3 one-way paths through the cavity. It's been transmitted through both mirrors. It's transmitted through the first one, and then transmitted through the second one. It's reflected off of both mirrors. So there's T1, T2 times R1, R2 and it's acquired a phase from going 3L of total distance in the cavity so a phase of E to the I3KL and you can do this for as many beams as you want you find that every time you go one more round trip, you add one more round trip delay you add an extra factor of reflecting off of each mirror and you add an extra 2L of path length okay, so for the nth beam after n round trips. We have an expression that you can just generalize this, which looks like this. And we're interested in the sum of all these beams from the n equals 0 beam, which went straight through the cavity, to the one that's bounced back and forth an infinite number of times. So we'll sum this term from n equals 0 to infinity. We can do that if the incident beam is constant. If it's constant and not changing in time, then En of t is the same as En of t at some other time. If it's time independent, I can ignore this time dependence. Okay, and if I can do that, then the rest of these terms have an exponential dependence on n. It's some constant times n, I'm sorry, some constant raised to the n some constant raised to the n. Where did extra, uh, exponential to the come from? My terms look like e to the I KL for the directly transmitted beam, that's n equals 0. For the n equals 1 beam, it traveled three lengths of the cavity, so I had e to the i3kl. I so I'm separate. separating out the, the n dependence from the. So this term accounts for how many round trips it goes. This term accounts for the initial transmission through. Okay, so if I can consider this a constant, I can pull it out of the sum, and what I'm left with is a geometric series. Okay, so a geometric series is an infinite sum over some constant times some value to the nth power. And it's probably worth noting that my constant and this expression looks like an times t1 t2 e to the ikl and my this is usually expressed as r which is a little confusing because this is just from math tables this r is just this term and over here r represents something I call the reflection coefficient so this, is, this r is not the reflection coefficient it's the, the quantity that's being raised to the nth power and that quantity is r1, r2, e to the i, 2kl. So when you raise that to the nth power, I get this term and that term. Okay. So evaluating this geometric series, I get this expression here for the transmitted field. The t1, t2, e to the i, kl, e in is just my constant term on the front. And then I have 1 minus the quantity that's raised to the exponent, which is r1, r2, e to the i2kl. Wade? Sorry. Um, in previously, when we were looking at film, then film we talked about the phase difference. Mm-hmm. Here you're adding in a factor for the time to um, Well, this, the phase difference of all these beams is 2kl. So I think before, we just called this term here delta. Um, I'm including the time delay here for a thin film that time delay is basically negligible I mean it's by definition of it being thin whereas here these mirrors could be spaced by kilometers could be spaced by millions of kilometers in the case of some experiments that are being done in space so this time delay could be on the order of 30 seconds the Lisa experiment which is a gravitational wave detector in space has mirrors that are 500 million kilometers apart which you can do in space because they're on two separate spacecraft that are flying 500 million kilometers apart. The time delay between them for light is 30 seconds which has a lot of interesting results. It means that you don't shine your laser at the other mirror, you shine the laser where the other mirror is going to be 30 seconds from now. Um, but it also means that if the amplitude of your laser varies over the course of 30 seconds, then you can't just assume that it's a constant field. Now, Most laboratory-scale interferometers, this separation is going to be less than a meter. Um, A meter is 10 nanoseconds. And so if you're basically dealing with a CW laser, not a pulsed laser, then you can probably assume that the field is constant over the order of 10 nanoseconds or so. Gregory? Gregory? Right, so you have to isolate it from from matter. So they're they're flown in what's called free fall, uh, They're flown in what's called a drag free trajectory. So there's a spacecraft, which and a uh, freely floating object inside the spacecraft, and that freely floating object is shielded from all external forces by the spacecraft. So solar wind, little specks of dust when they hit, they hit the spacecraft, not the object inside. So the spacecraft can get bumped around but the object inside is is freely floating. So so we can talk about it more after class if you're interested. (laughs) Okay, so um, we have an expression for the transmitted field, and we can rewrite this. So now I've replaced the uh, 2KL with just some phase difference delta here. Um, We'll just express everything in terms of delta at the moment. Um, So here's the transmitted field. If I want to talk about the transmitted power, that's related to the field squared, so I can talk about the transmission coefficient as being the f- transmitted field squared over the input field squared. I can do that if the index of refraction is the same for the incident and transmitted fields. So in the case of a fabry Pro cavity, it's usually in air or in vacuum, and that would be the case. Okay, so I just take this expression and I square it. Um, I'm Using this phasor notation, so these are complex numbers, I need to take the absolute value squared. So one way of doing that is I take this expression and I multiply it by its complex conjugate. Right, so in the denominator here, I have a complex term, and so I multiply it by its complex conjugate, and the i becomes minus i. And I do that so that I get a real value for the transmission coefficient. OK, so I can evaluate this. Um, the numerator doesn't change here, going from this step to this step. But I expand the denominator. I have a 1 times a 1, which comes in the first term. I have a minus R1, R2, e to the i delta times minus R1, R2, e to the that's plus i delta, that's e to the minus i delta. So the plus i and the minus i deltas cancel out. The minus R1, R2, and the minus R1, R2 give me plus R1, R2 squared. And then I have a 1 times this term, plus a 1 times this term. So what I have is r1, r2, e to the i delta, and an r1, r2, e to the minus i delta. Right, so I can factor out the minus r1, r2. And I have e to the i delta plus e to the minus i delta. I can divide that by 2 and multiply this by 2. And then this term becomes cosine of delta. I have a minus 2R1R2 cosine delta. And then I can just group things a little bit. I can, uh, I can notice that the largest this, this transmission will ever be is when — see, delta goes to zero, then this term becomes its largest value. And because it's negative, it's going to reduce the value of the denominator, making the expression big. Right, so that's the biggest the transmission will ever be. So if I evaluate this at delta equals 0, um, maybe it's easiest to go back a step. If I evaluate it at delta equals 0, I have 1 minus R1 R2 all squared, which is uh, it's not exactly the quantity in parentheses, which is suggesting I was going to drive. That's in the next slide. All right, so uh, forget that for a second. What I've done is I've divided everything by 1 plus r1, r2 squared. Okay, So the t1, t2 squared divided by 1 r plus r1, r2 squared. I pull out in the front. This term, when I divide it by this term, gives me 1, and this term when I divide it by this term is expressed here. So I've just rewritten this like this, where I have a term that doesn't depend on delta out front. All the dependence on delta in this term over here and all the other terms are equal to 1. The reason I do that will be uh, clear in a minute. I'm going to rewrite this term by expressing cosine delta as 1 minus 2 sine squared delta over 2 just a trig identity I plug that in this term in parentheses Uh, when I do that I can expand this and the term which comes from the 1 times this factor I can bring over here and rewrite the term in parentheses and now the term in parentheses has some physical meaning Uh, the quantity that's left over here looks like sine squared delta over 2 so now when delta equals 0 that's where the transmission is maximum Uh, this term equals 0 this fraction equals 1 so this term in parentheses is the maximum transmission the maximum transmission coefficient it's the transmission coefficient at delta equals 0 so I've separated sort of the Amplitude of the transmission from the dependence on delta, and this term over here, which gives me some functional form to the transmission coefficient as a function of delta, is called the Airy function, and I can plot that. Mark, how did you um, the t max term? Yeah, why is there minus? Yeah, it's not straightforward and obvious, but what I had right here, that's the term in parentheses. And then I'm going to expand this uh, denominator. And it looks like 1 minus 2R1R2, or 1 plus R1R2, all squared plus 2 times 2R1R2 two over 1 plus R1R2 all squared sine squared delta over 2. Now Let me group these terms. Yeah, it, it did move, but it's not, it's not an error. It's just some math steps that got not included. Um, let see. let me write this term. Over a common denominator, then one plus r one r two all squared is is this minus two r one r two means those terms cancel out, and what's left I can write as r plus r one r two times 1 minus R1, R2. So I have right here, I have, no, I can't do that, never mind. But that's not all that's going on here. This term here is getting folded yeah. into this. No, no, no. we right. the first, first line to the second. Of, not the Meaning the, this third. to this? No. This no. to this. OK. No. 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 right. Right uh, yeah. yeah. that, that one, and the one. This oh, no. right. where the square is? Yeah. yeah. And it you know what, it's probably, this right. parenthesis right. should probably be right there. Because that's what it was before, and that's at least the uh, form that it is after. Okay, you know, I'll I'll check that after class. I don't think it's worth taking the time to do now. Um, you can believe the last line, and I can plot the last line um, as a function of delta. Okay, it's going to be a function of the reflectivities as well. So I'll plot it for just sort of. Uh, one value of the reflectivity is delta, and that's called the Airy function. So I'll call it A of delta. And at delta equals 0, this term is 0, and this is 1. And then as delta goes away from 0, um, this term grows, and the whole thing becomes smaller. And so it's, in some sense, it's going to decrease to some minimum value. And then when delta increases by, I guess, uh, pi, then this pattern's going to repeat. So there's some min. The max is 1, the min I'll call A sub min. And I can look at what effect the values of R have here. Um, If R1 times R2 is a number close to 1, meaning these are high reflectivity mirrors, most of the light is reflected, then this term has a magnitude, which is close to 1, so I have 1 minus a number close to 1. That gives me a small denominator. And this term has a large value. Okay, so that doesn't affect anything when delta equals 0. Right, so the term is 0. But When delta goes away from 0, this denominator can become very large. The function can become very small quickly. And the effect that has is to narrow these peaks. So this might be for r about 0.5. This might be for r about, say, 0.9. And as r gets closer to 1, those peaks get narrower and narrower. And in the limit where r goes to 1 it becomes a series of delta functions. <coughs> Ironic that I'm calling it a delta function. It's a function of delta, the delta function of delta. And that's called the Airy function. And we'll see the physical significance of that in the fringe pattern of the mirrors. Okay, so a couple of interesting things to note. Um, that term in parentheses, which we call the maximum transmission, look like T1 squared T2 squared over 1 minus R1 R2 all squared. And if we assume that the mirrors are lossless, and that we have the same material on both sides, then T squared plus R squared equals 1. The fraction of transmitted power plus the fraction of reflected power has to equal 1 if there's no loss. So what that lets me do is, uh, first if the mirrors are identical, I'll replace T1 and T2 with just T, replace R1 and R2 with R, and then I'll replace the T squared with 1 minus R squared. I'll bring that to the other side, which I can write right there. And that gives me a 1 minus R squared all squared in the numerator, which is the same as the denominator. So what's the maximum transmission of the cavity on resonance? percent 100%. 100%. Okay, so that's counterintuitive. At least it should be counterintuitive, unless your intuition is uh, far beyond that of someone taking an introductory optics class. What it says is, you take a mirror, you look into the mirror, it reflects light. Put another mirror behind it. You look into the mirror, it reflects light. You don't see this other mirror because it's behind it. Right? But if the spacing between these mirrors is just right, then for the wavelength at which that spacing is just right, yeah, it's transparent. Okay, the presence of the second mirror makes the entire system transparent. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can't get 100%, but with
1: 97, can you yeah,
0: this is trivial to do in the lab. Can you bring a set of Um The challenge is this spacing varies due to thermal fluctuations, due to acoustic noise, due to all sorts of things. So typically, you need a feedback system that monitors that spacing and then feeds back. So it's not as simple as putting two mirrors together and shining light through it. Um, you actually have to monitor the light that goes through and then feed back to a system. So it's a little bit harder to just bring in. OK, so um, this, <coughs> I'm going to s- skip ahead a couple slides and come back to this. Let's look at the interference pattern of a Fabry Pro cavity. Um, if you had diverging light going into your mirrors, let me get my red marker to represent that. If you have diverging light going in, then what comes out will be some interference pattern. And if we start where the reflectivity of the mirrors is 0, right, what comes out is just the light that you put in. So the transmission would just be the diverging light, and its interference pattern would look something like this. You've got a bright spot. As we turn up the reflectivity of the mirrors, what we should see, I should mention at r equals 0, the area function would just be a flat line. So as we turn up the reflectivity, this airy function becomes more comb-like, more sharply defined peaks. And because this gives the transmission as a function of delta, the phase difference of the, the interfering beams, and because delta is a function of the angle, then these peaks will produce rings. Okay. At certain angles, at certain distances away from the center of this screen, the light is traveling at a certain angle, and at the angle that corresponds to a path length difference that's an integer multiple of two pi, we will get constructive interference. Okay. And so let's watch what happens as I ramp the reflectivity of the mirrors up. You start to see rings. And as the reflectivity grows, the sharpness of those rings increases. And I think this is a reflectivity here of 0.99. And it's, uh, what's happened is the sharpness has grown to the point that the rings aren't resolved on a single pixel on this image. OK, so rings. So this is just, if we took the cross-section of this this is the airy function plotted as a function of delta and delta is varying as a function of cosine theta which is why this spacing isn't, isn't identical Okay, so It's not very easy to see only slightly better. Um, So this is an extremely useful device. What I've plotted here is what the transmission pattern would look like if you're illuminating the interferometer not with just diverging monochromatic light, but diverging light that has multiple sources, multiple wavelengths in it. So here's the interference peak or the interference fringe due to the red light and here's an interference fringe due to blue light and here's one due to green light can you see those? I know they're hard to see but what you can see is different wavelengths will produce their interference fringes at different points because delta over here is a function of wavelength delta looks like uh, 2kl cosine of theta, which is uh, 4 pi L cosine theta over lambda. So delta is a function of lambda. If we consider a bright fringe, then we can say that the wavelength of that bright fringe Has to obey um, this relationship. So for the mth bright fringe where the path length difference is 2 pi m, the wavelength is 2L cosine theta over m. Right, so what you could do is you could send light into a fabry Pro interferometer, you could image the output, get an image something like this. Right, you could measure the radius of each of these fringes. And knowing that in the spacing to your interferometer, infer the angle, theta m. So that could be written as 2L, um, the height over the distance. I don't want to use L because that was our separation. but The distance, I'll call it capital D. So in this case, L and D are properties of your experiment, the separation of the mirrors, the distance from the mirrors to your camera. And then if you record the position of the nth bright fringe, you can determine the wavelength of the light that produces it. So you can use this as a way to determine what the wavelength of light is of the source. And because these fringes are so fine, you can measure their position very accurately. And the higher the reflectivity of the mirrors are, the, the finer these fringes are, and the more accurately you can measure their position. Okay, so having seen that, I want to go back and talk about some of the some of the parameters of the, uh, of the instrument. Before you do that, can I ask a question? Yeah. On um, the two mirrors, are they silvered on both sides, or are they silvered on the inside? No, they're not going to be silvered on both sides. If they did, then you wouldn't need two of them. You'd have two surfaces, you'd have an edelon. A typical mirror, that a typical silvered mirror that you'd use in a laboratories. Uh, well, let me go back. Your bathroom mirror, is a piece of glass with a thin coating of silver applied to it. and a bathroom mirror, is the silver on the front or the back? It's on the back. The glass provides some protection from the coating. That's why. Now, in a lab, if you had the same mirror, you wouldn't want to use it that way. You'd turn it around and reflect directly off the front surface so that there's less material in the path that can distort your beam, if you're just using it to reflect the light. Um, in the case of a cavity what you're interested in is the light going back and forth inside the cavity and you don't want to have extra glass in there that's going to distort the light so you'd want the reflecting surfaces to be on the interior of the substrates So it's kind of hard to draw with only one color but you'd want the reflecting surfaces to be on the inside that way there's nothing other than air or vacuum or whatever gas you put in there. There's nothing else in between the reflecting surfaces. If you turn them around and have the glass inside, then you're sensitive to things like the power being absorbed in the glass changing its temperature, which changes its index of refraction. Um, you're sensitive to some of the 4% of the light reflecting off of the wrong surface. Um, now that's for a silvered mirror Silvered mirrors reflect about 80% of visible light okay? The reason you don't notice that in your bathroom is because there's nothing behind the mirror that you can see I mean, So 20% of the light behind the mirror is coming through it but there's no light behind the mirror so you don't see anything If you cut a hole in your wall and put a TV behind your mirror then you'll see a TV superimposed on your image. And I've seen that done in a couple shows that show how to do stuff like that. Is there reflection, the reflection of ast- well, there, so silver, is it depends on what wavelength you're interested in. Silver becomes very highly reflective in the infrared. If you're doing infrared astronomy, silver is fine. Um, <coughs> gold is a little higher reflection in the near infrared, but then it absorbs in the green, which is why it looks gold. Um, What's typically used in laser labs is not metal mirrors but a stack of dielectric films. We saw how the reflection off the front and back surface of a film can add up constructively to to reduce the amount of light transmitted through the film. It can also add up to reduce uh, it can reduce the amount of light that's reflected or it can reduce the amount that's transmitted If you arrange it in what's called quarter wave stacks you can have a series of uh, thin films, and you get a little bit of reflection off of each interface, and if they add up coherently in the reflected beam, you can get most of the light reflected. And that's what's done in laboratories. Typically, if you're using a laser, if you use a laser, you know what wavelength you're interested in, and you can build a mirror that has the appropriate, uh, the appropriate phase condition for constructive interference at that wavelength. Alexander? Alexander? Um, The only truly 100% mirror that I'm aware of is total internal reflection. If you go from a high-index material to a low-index material and you're beyond the critical angle, then there's no solution for the transmitted wave, and 100% gets reflected. But other than that, um, there's always some some light that would be transmitted. Uh, Yes. In a material, you can produce a changing index of refraction in the material as a function of the electric field or magnetic field. So you can can dynamically change the index of refraction profile and basically have one of those grid lenses that was in the homework problem, turn it on, turn it off, change the focal length by dialing a, a dial. You can't, there's something called the Aronov Bohm effect, which causes the polarization of light in a vacuum to get rotated due to the presence of the A field, the, the, scale, the scalar magnetic field. And it's sort of the first, it was a, the Aronov Bohm experiment was the first experiment that demonstrated that the, 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 um, that the vector potential or the, the scalar potential was a real quantity and not just a mathematical invention. The amount of rotation you get is, requires a super heroic experiment to measure. You're not gonna use this effect to do anything practical in the laboratory. <coughs> okay. So I, I wanna go on and talk about some of the properties of a Fabri-Pro interferometer and uh, hopefully do an example. Okay, so if we look at this function, which shows us the transmission as a function of delta, okay, we can ask um, physically what's going to cause delta to change. And so it can change if the length of the cavity changes. It can change if the angle changes. That's what we saw in the previous interference pattern of rings. Each ring represented a different angle but the length was fixed. You could also have a fixed angle if your light is not diverging and scan the length of the cavity and as you scan it you would see transmission peaks at particular lengths. Or it can vary as a function of k. Well, k is 2 pi over lambda. So if the wavelength varies, then delta varies. So this axis here can represent a number of things changing. If you imagine all of these except for one thing fixed, you could, plot, you could have a similar plot here as a function of angle, as a function of length of the cavity, as a function of wavelength of the illuminating light. Um, in any event, um, it's often useful to express this as, um, to express k as two pi um, c over. Well, let me let me put it this way: we'll express the wavelength as um, c over f. then we can express this as a function of frequency. And the reason I do that is because most of the parameters that describe a Fabry-Perot cavity are typically given in terms of the frequency um, of this axis. So the width of these lines, their separation, are all usually expressed in terms of frequency. And so for a given length in a given divergence angle, which is typically assumed to be 0, so that the light is illuminating an on on-axis, then you can relate a frequency to the phase difference. Okay, so let me plot, let me assume this is now plotted as a function of frequency. Then the width of these transmission peaks is called the line width. Express that by delta F. And because you need some quantitative way to define what that is, we typically do the full width, half max. So at half maximum, this is where the airy function is one half, we take the full width of that line. Okay, and as the mirror reflectivities go up, that line width goes down. The line width is an important property because if you're using this as a tunable filter, if you're trying to measure different wavelengths of light using this cavity, That's equivalent to measuring different frequencies of light. And this line width tells you how much the frequencies need to differ such that one gets transmitted and the other one doesn't. So in order to distinguish two different frequencies of light, they need to be separated by more than the line width. So that gives you a sense of um, how well you can resolve different frequencies or equivalently different wavelengths of light using this, this cavity. And So a smaller line width lets you resolve more frequencies. No, uh, well, the transmission, the maximum transmission, goes, um, is always going to be one in our case of lossless. And so, if you look at these lines, clearly the wider line is going to. Tra- I mean, if illuminated with white light, the wider line is going to illumin- uh, be brighter than the narrower line because it's going to let more light through. Okay, but if you have a laser that's at a fixed frequency, um, if that frequency what we call on resonance. If it's at the center of a line, then it'll be transmitted regardless of whether the line is wide or narrow. You'll get the same brightness being transmitted. Okay, so we can derive what that line width is from our airy function. We want to find the full width half max, which means the airy function has to be reduced to half, which means the denominator needs to be increased from 1 to 2. So this term has to equal that term at the uh, half maximum. And so we'll set this term equal to 1, and we'll solve for the value of delta that gives that. That value of delta tells you how far you have to detune from line center. We're interested in the full width, so we have to take twice that value to get the full width half max. And it can be expressed in terms of the reflectivities as such. OK, so I, yeah, this, this one I think is a little easier to work out. Um, let's start here. I'm going to take the square root of both sides. Square root of the right side is just 1. And um, this, yeah, there is an approximation. Square root of 1 minus R1, R2. I'm going to write that as. The difference of squares. And now I'm going to say, in the case where R1 is R1 and R2 are high reflectivity, meaning they're approximately equal to 1, this term is approximately equal to. Two. Right, so I'll factor that out and I'll just call that square root of 2. And I think at that point you may be able to uh, see the rest of this. Yeah. It becomes square root of 2 R1 R2. Square to one minus R one r two. Let me check. I'll need to, I'll need, I think this may, potentially could be related to the uh, location of the parentheses. Let me investigate that after class. Um, this expression definitely is correct. Okay, the expression for the area function I assumed was correct. I know this one is correct, because I can look at it and recognize it. Um, so this was the full width half max in terms of delta. And if we want to write delta, in terms of the frequency, then we can do so and express this as c over pi L times this quantity. So That's in units of frequency, c meters per second divided by meters is is per second, so that's the frequency. That gives us the width of these lines. Now their separation is always 2 pi in terms of delta. Or in terms of frequency, that's 2 omega L over C. Um, that has to equal 2 pi. So in terms of frequency, the separation is C over 2L. Okay. So if the separation is known and the width is known, one quantity that's useful is to describe how sharp these lines are, meaning how narrow they are relative to their spacing. We call that the finesse. Um, so in order to know that we need to know the line width and we need to know the separation of the lines the separation of the lines we call the free spectral range so we can relate um, delta which is 2kl or 2 omega l over c Um, that has to vary by 2 pi in order for the pattern to repeat which means that the frequency We replace omega with 2 pi f. Then we get that the frequency has to vary by c over 2L in order for this pattern to repeat. So every time the frequency increases by c over 2L, the pattern repeats and I see a new set of rings. That's also important because what it tells me is if I'm trying to differentiate between two different wavelengths of light using this device, if those wavelengths or frequencies on this plot, they need to differ by more than a line width in order to be resolved. But if they differ by a free spectral range or more, then what's going to happen is, let's say they differ by exactly one free spectral range, the mth fringe of one line, of one wavelength, is going to coincide with the m plus 1 and m minus 1 of the other wavelength. And I'm not going to be able to tell them apart. Okay, so the wavelengths, or the frequencies, need to be less than a free spectral range in order to be measured and greater than a line width. So when this device is used as a measure of wavelength, those are two constraints that are placed on it. And so you'd like the free spectral range to be large relative to a line width in order to maximize um, the ability of this device to distinguish between wavelengths. And that's given by the finesse. So the finesse, which we write as a script letter F, is the free spectral range divided by delta F. How many line widths can fit in one free spectral range? How many of these transmission peaks can you have? How many widths of that peak can you have before the pattern repeats? That's how many different frequencies of light you can resolve. Okay, so the free spectral range is C over 2L. The line width we derived here. In the case where the reflectivity is high, then this term in the numerator is small. And we can say arc sine is approximately equal to its, its, uh, its argument. And so we can simplify this by forgetting about the arc sine. And it simplifies to this expression here. A couple things about this. For high reflectivity, R1 and R2 are close to 1. So this term in the square root in the top is about 1. The term in the denominator, R1 times R2, if the mirrors are identical, that becomes the power reflection coefficient. And so what this tells you is 1 minus the power reflection coefficient, well, that's the transmission, power transmission. Tells you the finesse is pi over the power transmission. So if you have a mirror that transmits 1% of the light, its finesse is pi times 100. It's 314. If your mirrors only transmit uh, one part per 1,000, then this becomes pi times 1,000. OK, so let's do an example. Let's say we have a Fabri-Pro interferometer that's being used with a Heaney laser. So the wavelength of a Heaney laser is 632.8 nanometers, um, or that's the center wavelength. But typically there's multiple, what's called multiple modes of the laser. Typically there are different, um, different, different frequencies that give um, standing waves inside of the laser cavity that are... Uh, give wavelengths that are close to this, close enough that they're within the atomic gain profile of the helium-neon system. And so if those are separated by 150 megahertz, that's a laser that's about, uh, about a foot in length would have a mode separation of about 150 megahertz. Then if we want to use the Fabri-Pro interferometer to resolve those different components of the helium-neon light, um, and we have a fabry Pro with a power reflectivity of three nines, 0.999, then how do we set it up to resolve this mode structure of the Heaney? Okay, so just to be clear in what's coming out of the laser, the intensity of the laser is a function of frequency. We often think of as being a delta function. Okay, but in this case, there's actually several different frequencies coming out of the laser. These frequencies all produce standing modes in the laser cavity, and they're all close enough to the uh, frequency at which the laser oscillates at, such that the, uh, they, can be, they can produce laser output. So the laser gain curve might look something like this. And this would be an example of a laser that has five different modes that are within that laser gain curve. Okay, so we have five different frequencies coming out. They're all very close together. So we would typically call that 632.8 nanometer light. Okay, But if we want to resolve those, uh, we can shine it through a fabry Pro. Typically, the way we would do this is shine the laser straight in, put a photodetector at the output. Right? I said when this length is such that the light is resonant, the light will transmit if these mirrors are identical. And so if we scan the length, we've got some function generator that can push on the mirror that produces a signal, and some actuator on the mirror, maybe a piezoelectric actuator that can move the, the mirror around, then we can plot as a function of time, which corresponds to a function of length, since we're driving this with a linear ramp. And as the cavity sweeps through, through a half a wavelength, then all of these different frequencies will be resonant at some point. We should be able to measure that on an oscilloscope. And then once it goes through a full half wavelength, that pattern is going to repeat. So this would be like the nth order interference. This would be like the m-plus-1. And we know that the distance between here corresponds to what we call a free spectral range. which is C over 2L, so we know we can calibrate our oscilloscope trace in terms of frequency. If this is C over 2L and we can measure the length of the mirror of the cavity, then we know how many megahertz this corresponds to, and we can then measure the frequency difference of these modes. Okay, so first of all, what's the finesse of the instrument? We're given a power reflectivity, and that's all that we need to calculate the finesse the finesse looks like this. And if these are identical mirrors, then r1 equals r2 equals the square root of r. So this looks like pi times the square root of r over 1 minus r. Square root of 0.999 is 0.9995. So the effect in the numerator of this square root of r term is negligible. And the denominator, 1 minus that, .00 .001. So this becomes pi times 1,000.. The three significant digits, 3140. So that's the finesse. We need to resolve lines that are separated by 150 megahertz. So that's the spacing here. We need the line width of the interferometer to be less than 150 megahertz so that we can resolve these. Okay, so the line width um, the line width needs to be less than 150 megahertz. That's it, there's no calculation to do. We know the separation of the, the uh, structure we're trying to resolve. Our resolution needs to be better than that. What's the maximum free spectral range this instrument can have and still resolve these modes? Okay, so if we've fixed the line width in this, in this plot to be a certain value, then as and we know the free spectral range, Right, then the distance between these is the number of line widths, or the free-spectral range is, an, the finesse is the number of line widths that fit between these. If I know the finesse and I know the, the size of a line width, I know the separation. Okay, that separation is called the free-spectral range, and it's the number of line widths times the number of line widths that fit within a free-spectral range, or the finesse. Okay, so delta F was 150 megahertz, or that was the, the largest it could be. The finesse was 3140. So the free spectral range can't be greater than 471 gigahertz. Meaning these peaks can't be separated by more than 471 gigahertz. Because if they did, if you take this plot and you just stretch it out, we would have also stretched the line width to be too far, too big to resolve the individual lines. Now the free spectral range could be less than that, that would give a line width which is smaller than 150 megahertz, which would give us better ability to resolve the uh, different lines. Okay, so what mirror spacing is required? So we've determined the free spectral range has to be less than 471 gigahertz. The free spectral range is c over 2l. Okay, so we can solve for l. L has to be at least 318 microns. Okay, so that's not hard, right? I mean, put two mirrors together, you're probably not going to place them closer than that. So that's not a very strict constraint. If you put them further apart, the free spectral range becomes smaller. The line width becomes smaller. And our requirement is that the the structures we're trying to resolve have to be further apart than the line width and not as far apart as the free spectral range. So there's an upper limit as well on how far we can put the mirrors apart. If the free spectral range were equal to 150 megahertz, then we couldn't resolve this struc- these structures. And if we solve for the length, um, I believe that would give us, I didn't work it out, but 150 megahertz divided by C is one half, times two is a quarter, L is a quarter of a meter, so 25 centimeters <coughs> would be the maximum length we could have between the mirrors. And finally, what's the minimum resolvable wavelength? The minimum resolvable frequency difference is 150 megahertz. How does that relate to wavelength? So we can say that the speed of light is frequency times wavelength. If we differentiate this, the left side is a constant. So its derivative is 0. The right side, we have to use a chain rule. We can say that's f times d lambda plus lambda times df. And so we have an expression for the line width delta f. We know the wavelength of light and the frequency. We can solve for, for delta-lambda, our resolution and wavelength. I can write it in terms of the frequency and wavelength, or I can write the frequency in terms of the wavelength and get an expression in terms of our wavelength, our line width, and the speed of light. And it evaluates to 0.2 picometers. So that's uh, 2 times 10 to the minus 4 nanometers. So we're really looking at very small changes in the wavelength. If we talk about it as 632.8 nanometer light, these different frequency components would have different uh, wavelengths that would only appear in the uh, fourth digit after the 632.8. Okay, so Fabry-Pro cavities have an interference pattern which is much sharper than that of a Michelson, and it gives them much better resolving power when used to uh, measure frequencies, wavelengths, or really any of the things that you'd use a Michelson interferometer to measure. Um, The the sharpness of the fringes is expressed by the finesse. The spacing is expressed by the free spectral range. And the width is determined by the line width. And we have expressions in the notes for calculating all those things. I'll check the the issue with the parentheses and get back to you on that next time. See you later. Have a good weekend.